And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So, likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two dinari and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. This is the word of God. Won't you pray with me before we get stuck in? Father, this is a difficult, painful issue. And as the whole range of emotions surfaced this morning, won't you, in the power of your Spirit, remind us constantly that we are one in the image of God, that we are equal in our sin, that we are one in Christ our Redeemer, and that we will be one in glory. Soften our hearts, we pray, for Christ's sake. Amen. As I'm sure you can imagine, this is not an easy talk to give. It's a sensitive, explosive issue, and both sides of the issue are in the room. There are lots of dangers. I could offend one group or another. Perhaps what's even worse, I could pander to one group or another. I could pursue the favor of men and say all the politically correct things. My aim could be to please everybody and offend nobody. But my duty, as always, the duty of anyone who steps into this pulpit, is plain. I must aim to please God and God alone by making the gospel as clear as I can. And that is what I aim to do. I've done another talk, just so that you know, I've done another talk on the gospel and whiteness. Uh, It serves as a kind of an introduction to this one. So it really is a useful background to this one. Please go and listen to it. It's on the website if you haven't listened to it already. The Gospel and Whiteness. 
part of a series. Um, you'll find it on the website. Racism. Why is it wrong? Why should we be so offended by it? The basic premise of racism, as you well know, is that there are certain groups of human beings that are superior to other groups of human beings on the basis of their physiology or their culture. But the Bible's anthropology, the Bible's view of humanity, is a flat rejection of that idea in at least four ways. I'm sure you could discover more from the scriptures, but at least these four. There are four great levelers in the Bible, four pillars holding up the truth of human equality, four chapters in the story of one humanity. These are the four. Creation, fall, redemption, glory. Creation, fall, redemption, glory. Creation. All mankind, all mankind was created in the image of God. That means whatever your culture, your ethnicity, we bear equal value, equal worth, equal dignity, because the image of God is essential to humanity and not to a particular skin color or a particular culture. The image of God does not discriminate. The four. In Adam, all mankind fell. All mankind. The human race is a race of sinners. Every culture is corrupt, even though that corruption may take on different forms, manifest in different ways. The symptoms may be different, but the underlying disease of sin is the same. Sin does not discriminate. Redemption. In Christ, every culture, every race was crucified. Every culture, every race rose again to live for God. The offer of the blood of Christ does not discriminate. Glory. People from every tribe, tongue, and nation will gather around the Lamb in the new creation. People from every race will have a glorious future together. We will spend eternity with brothers and sisters from every culture. So the Bible doesn't dissolve our differences or kind of flatten them out into some sort of bland, gray humanity. Instead, all of that diversity will enter into eternity and enrich our united worship of God. Who, as we said last week, is himself a unity in diversity. Glory does not discriminate. So those are our four great levelers. Creation, fall, redemption, glory. That's why racism is such an offense. Because as with all sin, it is an offense against God. It is an offense against his design and his purposes for humanity. God says to humanity, you share the image. You share the sin. You share in the cross. You will share in the glory. You are one in your diversity. Racism says, this black is not made in the image of God. This white is more of a sinner than I am. The blood of Jesus is enough for blacks, but how could it possibly be enough for whites? No blacks in glory. Slacks blankers. That's what racism says. Racism shakes its fist at God and says, we will tell you what humanity is, who humanity is, what it is to be truly human. We will tell you. But the Bible is crystal clear. 
It gives us the framework we've just described. And that framework is what we need to bring to any discussion on racism. It's the framework we must have in the back of our minds as we approach this parable, the parable of the Good Samaritan. What is happening in this parable? Well, first of all, why this parable? Why this one? It's loaded with racial tension for one reason. And secondly, it offers a clear and compelling solution to racism. And that solution is love. Now let me give you a quick overview of what's going on here. Jesus has set his face for Jerusalem. That's the Bible's way of saying he is determined to get there. He knows what's going to happen, but he's determined to get there. He's going there to die. And as he goes, he heals He proclaims the gospel. He teaches. The closer he gets to Jerusalem, the more and more intense is the opposition. And that's where we encounter this parable, this exchange between Jesus and the experts. On the road to Jerusalem, with the opposition growing and growing in intensity. Then Luke 10.25, an expert in the law stands up to test him. Now immediately we should doubt his motives, because on the one hand he makes a show of respect for the rabbi by standing. But on the other hand, we know that he's trying to trap Jesus. And he asks the big question of his day. What must I do to inherit eternal life? This is a salvation issue. This is a big question. Jesus turns the question back on him and refers him to the law, since he's the expert after all. The expert paraphrases the Old Testament commandments to love God and love your neighbor. And at this point, Jesus catches him in his own trap. He says, well done. Great answer. Now just go and do that. And now the lawyer's backpedaling. He, realize, he realizes he's the one who's been trapped. And so he does what lawyers do. He looks for the loophole. Verse 29. That little clause is so important to us. Desiring to justify himself. Desiring to justify himself. In other words wanting to show himself innocent before the law and worthy of eternal life since he's the expert, he asks this key question. Yes, Jesus, I must love my neighbor. But then again, who is my neighbor? You see how deceptive the human heart is? How twisted? You are telling me, Jesus, to love my neighbor, but that that really all depends on the definition of neighbor. He wants to limit the scope of love so that he can prove that he's kept the law and that he is worthy of eternal life. How does Jesus respond? He tells a story. The hero of the story is a Samaritan. Now to a law-abiding Jew, to our expert in the law, Samaritans were heretical half-breeds. Not only was their theology skew, but they had intermarried with foreigners. Their blood was dirty. They were ethnically contaminated. They were born a crime. The story itself is an illustration of a love that crosses all boundaries, including racial boundaries. It's the perfect story for us. It really is. So let's work through it. Five headings to guide us. Five headings. The problem with love. Love is blind. Love crosses over. Love knows no limits. And love is fueled by love. The problem with love, love is blind, love crosses over, love knows no limits, and love is fueled by love. The problem with love, 
The problem with love is in verse 29. The problem with love is that we only want to love the ones we like and the ones that are like us. The, the ones who, where it's convenient to love. The ones we think are worthy of our love. So if I love God and my friends, well surely that's enough. We want to define neighbor and limit the scope, close the circle of love to prove ourselves worthy of eternal life. To justify ourselves. Yes, Jesus, but who is my neighbor? That question is the problem with love. Deep down we know that we break God's commandment to love and so we have to self-justify. We have self-justifying hearts that try to cover up our guilt and make us look righteous compared to everybody else. Now what does that look like for white South Africans living in 2019? Well, racism ended in 1994, didn't you know? And I never really was a racist before that. I mean, I voted yes in the referendum, or my parents did. I've got a vuvuzela in the garage. I listen to Johnny Clegg. Whenever Nkalakata comes on at a wedding, I'm the first one on the dance floor. And I get on really, really well with my domestic worker. How could you possibly say I'm racist? What does self-justifying who is my neighbor look like for black people? I can't be racist. I'm black. Let me speak to the white people. Racism ended in 1994. So what do we do with Adam Katsavellos? The weatherman. For those who don't know, and I'm actually sorry to bring this into your life, but Adam sent a weather report from an island in Greece saying just how lovely it was. And uh, it included the fact that there were no black people anywhere to be seen. Only he used the K-word. So what do we do with him? Racism ended in 1994. Well, we saw what the liberal whites did. We rushed to express our disgust, our outrage. We threw stones at him on Twitter. It was digital mob justice. I found that reaction quite disturbing until I heard about a psychological complex called Schadenfreude. They all have German names, these complexes. Schadenfreude. Schadenfreude is taking joy in someone else's failure. And the main reason we do this thing is to conceal our own guilt, to conceal our weakness, and to present ourselves strong. In other words, self-justification. Desiring to justify himself. That's what it says, doesn't it? And that's what the tidal wave of righteous indignation from white liberals was. For me, it's clear evidence that the only difference between Adam Katsavellos and many of us is that he got caught. If we are honest, we have the same dark impulse towards superiority lurking in our own hearts. The only difference is that his went viral. You say to me, never. Apartheid was yesterday. I've moved on. Let's move on. Is that really true? Do you love black people as yourself? Which in our context means loving them as if they were white people. Or as if you were black. 
Or are you only against racism because in our culture it has become the unforgivable sin? There's no doubt about that. And you don't want to get caught. Let's find out some diagnostic scenarios for you. Your daughter comes home from university with her boyfriend. He's black. She's pregnant. What is your first thought? Your child. Your child struggles with maths. In the next grade, there are two teachers. One is black, one is white. Which one are you hoping for? You need to see a surgical specialist. Your GP gives you two names. One is Thompson, the other one's Mazibuko. Who are you going to call? We laugh, but it's a nervous kind of a laughter, isn't it? Because I think the seeds of what Adam Katsavelos said are in all of us. And perhaps the only appropriate response to what he said, rather than throwing stones on him at Twitter, is profound grief. And perhaps the appropriate sentiment is, there but for the grace of God go I. What does the problem of love look like for black people? Well, the problem is this. Racism hasn't finished its work until the victim becomes the perpetrator. It's like child abuse. The devil isn't satisfied until that child himself becomes an abuser later on in life. Racism isn't done until the victim becomes the perpetrator, until black people, as victims of colonialism, apartheid, and then ongoing structural racism, until they themselves end up hating white people as a group, as a racial prejudice. That's the end game. That's where the devil wants to take us. As Martin Luther King put it, hate destroys the hater as well as the hated. And one way in which racism destroys its victims is to fill them with the very same racial hatred. Only it's exercised in the opposite direction. We also have to constantly remind ourselves of what the Bible teaches. And the Bible teaches that everyone is a potential racist. Why? Because everyone is a sinner. We see this truth writ large across all across history. The Armenian genocide in Turkey, the Holocaust in Germany, the Soviet gulag, the massacres in Rwanda and Bosnia, the Japanese slaughter of six million people from other Asian ethnic groups. Here at home we see intertribal tensions. Some of you have sat in my lounge and you've ed educated me on the stereotypes. So vendor men are like this, and Sutu women are like that, and the Zulus are so-and-so. And what about xenophobia? Because there's another poisonous K-word, isn't there? Quere, quere. Have we treated them as neighbors? Have we loved them as ourselves? The point I'm making is simply this. Ironically, tragically, racial hatred is for everyone. Anyone is capable of it. And it does not discriminate. We all have to look into our own hearts. So the problem with love is that we don't want to. Instead, we ask, 
But who exactly is my neighbor? And that way we only have to like the people like us, love the people like us. Putting this impossible problem to to one side for just a moment, let's dream. What would it look like if we did love each other? If we did cross over to the other side, what would it look like? The parable helps us. Love is blind. That's the first thing to notice. Look at how Jesus opens the parable in verse 30. If you have your Bible, it would be really helpful for me. Verse 30. Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. It says a man was going down. The King James Bible says a certain man. Literally, it's some man was going down. So Jesus has gone out of his way to conceal the victim's identity. A certain man was stripped naked, beaten, left to die. You see, the racist heart wants to know who the man is. What's his racial profile? Then I'll decide whether he's cause for concern or not. But Jesus makes it clear that love is blind to racial identity and social identity, social standing. The man was a human being in need. That's what it takes to be worthy of love. That's the only qualification. He was a human being in need. How does love respond? Love is blind and love crosses over. Verse 31. Now by chance a priest was going down that road and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. Priests and Levites were connected to the temple. They were supposed to be the ones who really loved God and therefore loved their neighbor. And they came from a privileged bloodline. You were born into the priesthood. You weren't voted in. You didn't nominate yourself. You were born in. So our expert in the law would have looked up to Jerusalem priests and Levites as the kind of inner circle, the Jerusalem inner circle. He would have aspired to move in those circles. He would have held them in high esteem. And yet, they don't really get a good review in our story, do they? I mean, Jesus doesn't comment on them directly, but the contrast with the hero of the story is very clear. So what exactly was their sin? Because they didn't beat the man. They didn't strip him naked. They didn't take any of his possessions. They had nothing to do with any of that. All they did was to pass by on the other side. And that, my friends, is their great sin. It's the sin of omission. It's the sin of asking, but who is my neighbor? Because clearly, for whatever reason, this man was not their neighbor. They didn't love him. They passed by on the other side. White South Africans are often guilty of this sin. We argue, but I didn't beat the man. I didn't vote for the Nats. I lived most of my life after 1994. We see our black brothers and sisters lying in the proverbial ditch, beaten and stripped naked by structural racism, and we say, but my name isn't for Voot. I had no part in that. I didn't beat the man. How can you claim I'm guilty? Abraham Joshua Heschel was a Polish-born American rabbi. He fled Poland during the Second World War. His mother was murdered by the Nazis. 
One sister died in a German air raid, and two other sisters died in Nazi concentration camps. The man understood racism. And it was he who said, few are guilty, but all are responsible. Few are guilty, but all are responsible. Because of our solidarity as human beings, because of those four great levelers, creation, fall, redemption, glory, because of our solidarity that is rooted in that, in God's design for us, in God's purposes for us, we are all responsible for racism. We may not be guilty, but we have to respond. We are all responsible. How much more so if you benefit from white privilege? And how much more so if, if that privilege was bought at the price of black oppression? When I lived in Cape Town, I used to run from my house uh, on the road to Simonstown. It's pretty much a straight road. So it would be out towards Simonstown, then I would turn around and come back. So straight out, turn around, come back. And I would often start out towards Simonstown. I would be flying along. Uh, there would be a gentle breeze blowing. I think, what a beautiful morning. Life is good. Until I turned around and came back and discovered that the gentle breeze was, in fact, a hurricane. And that running against the wind is a lot harder than running with it. You see, white privilege is a lot like that. Sometimes as whites, we don't even know that it exists because we are running with the wind. Kevin Leatham is the deputy principal of Jeppe Boys High, and he gave a talk to the boys on white privilege, and he put it like this. I think it's very helpful. I'm quoting here. I want to make this crystal clear. Saying that white people enjoy a privilege is not saying that their lives are easy or that they haven't worked hard. White people are not immune to the human condition. They suffer loss and hardship like everyone else. So then what is it? What is white privilege? For me, it's simply a preference for whiteness that saturates our society. I guess if you're white, it's sometimes hard to see the privilege because you're in it, and it's all you've ever known. It's like asking a fish to notice water. And then he goes on to give a few examples. So he talks about plasters. You know, the manufacturers claim that plasters are skin-colored. But whose skin are they talking about? Or what about shampoo in hotels? Whose hair do the, are those products suited to? What about entertainment? The world went nuts when uh, the film Black Panther came out. Many whites were asking, what is all the fuss about? But I'll tell you. Lethan tells us. Tells us that of the 14 to 15,000 superhero characters listed by Marvel and DC comic, Comics, five are black. Lethem closes with this tragic personal example. About two years ago, while walking through Woolworths picking up the week's groceries, my wife was stopped by a wannabe Good Samaritan. Interesting choice of words for us this morning. She was stopped in the store uh, by this woman who told her that she should keep an eye on her belongings, as she suspected that the boy walking behind her was trying to take something out of her handbag. The boy was my son, Oliver. He was four at the time. Since my son is black and my wife is white, I can understand that there may have been some confusion about whether or not they were together. 
But why did she assume he was stealing? Why was her first response not, oh, shame, that poor little boy, he must be lost? I mean, isn't it human nature to look at a four-year-old child and see innocence? And yet, something was stronger than that. Something overrode that instinct. Before she saw my son's age, she saw his color. You see, if you are black, even as a child, you do not have the privilege of being presumed innocent. White privilege is real. It's the wind at the backs of white South Africans. And structural racism is real. It's the wind in the faces of black South Africans. To ignore that, to pretend it doesn't exist, is to pass by on the other side. To acknowledge it is the first step in crossing over. Listen to Lethem again. Now how am I supposed to feel about white privilege? What do we do with it? You have no reason to feel ashamed. But I will tell you what I feel is appropriate. Stop denying it. Stop pretending that it isn't real. Stop throwing your hands in the air at the very mention of it. As a start, I'm going to ask you to be grateful for your privilege and realize that through no fault of yours or their own, millions of people are worse off and don't deserve to be. The best thing to do is just acknowledge it. You've been given an unfair advantage, so use it. Do something meaningful with it, or don't. But whatever you do, don't deny it. Nick Katsavellos, the brother of Adam the weatherman, he has a similar viewpoint. He says, white people, take a good look at your privilege, where you come from, and stop saying things like, well, we have policies in place, we have BEE, we're being discriminated against, etc., etc. I've had to look deeply into myself, and through this process, I've seen the threads of my prejudice still there. We need to take responsibility for our past, for the present. Be honest with yourself. Go into your family. Go into your own life, because inside all of us, there is a past that we carry and we cannot hide from. I would offer one correction from the scriptures. The thing inside of us is not just a past. It's very much a present spiritual reality. To ignore racism and white privilege is to pass by on the other side. But what does it take to cross over? Verse 33. A Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. It's not enough to notice that there's a structural problem. Love demands compassion. And that means seeing the person in their bruised and bloodied and naked state and recognizing here is a fellow human being made in the image of God, struggling with his or her own sin, bought with the blood of Christ, headed for glory. Compassion is seeing in another person your shared humanity. Without genuine compassion, there is no love. There is no crossing over. There's only signaling to the rest of the world that I'm not a racist. What does it look like for black people to cross over? Well, I guess it looks like what many of you are already doing. I think of uh, Ma Emily, who comes to the 8 o'clock service. She shared from this stage 
Just a few years ago, she shared how during apartheid, her younger brother had to have his stomach pumped because the police had given a hungry boy a sandwich spread thick with glue. Now, why would she ever sit next to a white person in church? Why would she ever talk to another white person ever again? I don't know. It's, it really is her story to tell. I did ask permission to share this with you. But I suspect compassion has something to do with it. Compassion means a willingness to forgive those small, twisted souls who are clinging to the illusion of superiority and to keep on forgiving them. There are many, praise God, there are many like Emily in our midst. But some are not. If you are a black person struggling with anger, bitterness, racial hatred, find the likes of Emily. Ask her where she gets her compassion. Again, I only imagine it, but I imagine, knowing Emily, I think this is a fairly good estimation. Jesus is at the heart of it. It's worth thinking about this. If Jesus were here today, where would he be? Who would he be mixing with? I think that during the day, he would be walking the streets with the victims of racism, loving them, healing their wounds. But at night, I think he would be eating dinner with Adam Katsavellos, loving him, loving the hatred out of him. Now, we might get tempted to get angry with a Jesus like that, get angry with Jesus who would eat with sinners, but then we wouldn't be the first, would we? Love has compassion and crosses over. Love knows no limits. Look at our Samaritan. Look at what he risks, at what it costs him. The temple men, they pass by on the other side. But he stops. He approaches. There was a stretch of road between... Jerusalem and Jericho was actually called the blood pass. That's how regular the attacks were, the blood pass. So by stopping to help, this Samaritan is not just engaging in an act of kindness. He's risking his own life. We need to be clear on that. And look at some of the costs that he incurs. Oil, wine, bandages. I mean, those things would have been relatively expensive in that culture. Then he puts the man on his own animal. He knows, when he's doing that, he knows he now has to walk the balance of the 30 kilometers between Jerusalem and Jericho on foot. That makes him slow. That makes him an easy target. Do you see the risks? When he gets to the inn, it is two days' wages that he hands over for the care of a complete stranger. And then, if if all of that weren't enough, he stands surety for any other expense. Just look at 35. Whatever more you spend, I will repay. Whatever more you spend, I will repay. There's no reciprocity. There's no quid pro quo. There's no you scratch my back. What's in it for me? The Samaritan places no limits on love. He doesn't limit who qualifies, and he doesn't limit how much he qualifies for. He simply loves his neighbor as himself. The question is, for every single one of us here this morning, Do we, 
How committed are we to each other? What are we willing to risk? What cost are we prepared to incur? Because there is a risk and there are costs in going over to the other side. For whites, one risk is rejection. You risk being laughed out of the room. One cost is the idea that white is right and everything else is culture. To paraphrase John Piper, when you are white, nothing you do is cultural. It's just the way things are done. When you are black, everything you do has color. You see, that's an attitude we're going to have to sacrifice if we are wanting to cross over. That's one of the costs. Because we have to approach our black brothers and sisters with humility and a willingness to listen and to learn. It's not that white culture is rubbish and black culture is perfect. No. Both cultures are a mixed reality. Both are made in the image of God. Both have been corrupted by sin. Both. And that's precisely why in the grace of God he has put us together. Because we need to help each other see our blind spots. One cost is white pride. For black people, the risk is being hurt yet again. And the cost, well, you forfeit your rights to revenge or to any kind of feeling of self-righteousness. Because compassion means acknowledging that this person, however racist, is a sinner just like you. And forgiveness means foregoing the right to revenge and absorbing the cost and the hurt yourself. That's the nature of forgiveness. These are some of the costs and the risks we're going to have to incur. We have to face up to them if we're going to take love seriously because this is the price that love demands of us. Love is blind. Love crosses over. Love knows no limits. And now I think we are ready to understand how deep the problem of love actually is. And why it is we are so desperate to limit love by asking, yes, Jesus, but who is my neighbor? So you think about the costs, you think about those risks, and you say to me, love? I mean, preacher, what fairy tale, never, never land are you living in? Because I can tell you where I live. I live in the land of Adam Katsavellos. And the rates fall. And one settler, one bullet. And you're talking to me about love. Can you tell me another joke? You know what? I actually agree with you. 100%. We're never going to be blind to race. We are never going to cross over to the other side. I mean, love without limits, it's a pipe dream. I agree. If we read this parable as just another example to follow, it's a sick joke. That's all it is. But that is not how we're supposed to read it. Come with me to the last two verses, verse 36 and verse 37. Jesus speaking. He says to the expert in the law, Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? The expert replied, The one who showed mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. Do you see what's happened here? 
You see what Jesus has done. He has reframed the whole question. The original question was, who is my neighbor? Jesus' question, who has been a neighbor? The original question, who must I love? Jesus' question, who has done the loving? The expert in the law, because of his self-righteous, racist heart, cannot bring himself to even say the word Samaritan. Did you notice that? He said, the one who showed him mercy. He can't even say the word Samaritan. But there's no doubt the Samaritan is the one who loved. The Samaritan is the true neighbor. Who is this Samaritan? We have a precious clue right in the middle of the parable. It's in a single word. Compassion. Verse 33. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. In Luke's gospel, there are only two characters who are ever said to have compassion. Only two. God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. In the whole gospel, those are the only two who are ever said to have compassion. So I'm with the early church who identified the good Samaritan as Jesus himself. Jesus is the great Samaritan. We want nothing to do with him. But he sees our battered, broken, naked state. The state of sinners like us. And he is moved to compassion. He knows sinners better than we know ourselves. And yet, he is blind to anything but our humanity and our need. That's all he sees. He crosses over. He comes at enormous risk, an untold cost to himself. That cross, the crucified Lord Jesus, tells us every single day that there are absolutely no limits to the love he is willing to show us. See, by reframing the question, Jesus helps us all to see that if we are ever going to love others, we have to be transformed by the limitless limitless love that he shows us first. Love is fueled by love. Our love is fueled by his. It's only because Jesus loved perfectly that we can begin to love at all. It's only because he proved to be the perfect neighbor that we can stop asking, but who is my neighbor? It's only because God has shown us limitless mercy, the riches of his mercy, that we can begin to extend mercy to one another. The call of this passage, make no mistake about it, the call of this passage is for our love to be blind, for us to cross over and love each other with a love that knows no limits. How on earth are we ever going to do that? I mean, how are we even going to just keep from tearing apart, disintegrating, when the next weather report rolls in? Or when a politician finally comes out and says it plainly, let's drive the whites into the sea. When the world is drunk on hatred, how are we going to hold together and walk this narrow, dangerous pass called love? How are we going to move past barely tolerating one another to a place where we truly, genuinely love each other? Well, I can tell you one thing. 
apart from Jesus, it's a complete fairy tale. It's only when we draw from the bottomless wells of his love for us that we can begin and then keep on loving each other. It's only when we recognize that between your house and my house, we have a common neighbor. We have both hated him, and yet he has loved us both with the kind of love that tears down every wall. He will remind us that the person next door is a human being before they are black or white. We go to him to get what we need, the resources we need, the resources we don't have in and of ourselves. We go to him to get what we need to cross over and love each other. And our love for each other can be limitless. Only because he has placed no limit on his love for us. He is our love for each other. He is our only hope. And what a hope he is. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for sending the great Samaritan to love us. Thank you that he frees us from the same tired, old, hateful categories. We pray that by your spirit you will help us in this local church to cross over and to truly love each other without limit. We pray that we would be a beacon of light for those in our community around us, for those in Midran. May they know us by our love, Lord. May they know us by our love for one another and for them. Lord, heal us. Lord, help us to change. For Christ's sake. Amen.